The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Amos, in the 8th chapter, and reading from verse 9 to the end of verse 12, the book of the prophet Amos, chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day, and I will turn your feasts into mourning, and your songs into lamentation, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all lines, and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only sun, and the end thereof as a bitter day. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. I want particularly to deal with that eleventh verse in this eighth chapter of the book of the prophet Amos. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now there we have one of those final warnings which God addressed through this particular prophet to the children of Israel, particularly one section of them which were known as the Northern Kingdom. Israel are divided as the result of its sin into two great sections, as you know, and this was the northern section to whom this prophet Amos spoke. They had sinned like their brethren in Judah. And uh, so God sends them this word through the prophet. And it is a final warning, I say. It is one of the last words that God sent to them. And he indicates, as you notice, that he will say no more to them. But that calamity and disaster are going to descend upon them. And he describes that in the terms that are put so graphically in this tenth verse. But he says that in particular, that will be the form which their punishment and chastisement will take. There shall be a famine not of bread, not of water but of hearing the word of the Lord. And then they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Now, uh, it is just a strict and literal history to say that what was here prophesied and threatened to these people literally and actually did come to pass. They were overwhelmed by disaster. They then did seek for the word of the Lord, but they didn't find it. And they were left, and have continued to be left, without a word from the Lord. But this is not only true of this particular section of the children of Israel. The same thing exactly happened 
in a still more amazing and terrifying manner to the other section known as Judah. Because, as you remember, God not only sent prophets to them, he sent his only son to them. The Lord Jesus Christ, after the flesh, was a Jew of the seed of Israel, of the tribe of Judah. And he came to his own, his own people, and his own received him not. The word, the incarnate word of God came, and they wouldn't receive him. And in their case, likewise, this same threatening was fulfilled, the same prophecy was fulfilled. For you remember that after they had rejected the word and the offer of God in his son, in A.D. 70, their city was attacked and destroyed and they were cast out amongst the nations. And they have remained there ever since. And they have been without this word from the Lord. They've sought it. They've been waiting for the Messiah to come. They've rushed hither and thither, as is described here, but they've never found it. They've never found peace and satisfaction. So that in a very literal and extraordinary manner, what is prophesied here has, I say, become historical truth and fact in the long life story of the children of Israel. But tonight I'm concerned to consider it with you not so much in its precise context and setting in that way as in a more general way. And we are fully entitled to do this. There can be no doubt at all but that God, as indeed we are told in many places in the scripture, has set forth the children of Israel as a kind of pattern and example of his dealings with the whole of mankind. God created them, raised them up, in order that he might speak to men, in order that he might address the whole world. He's doing it through them, through their scriptures. And they are a kind of object lesson. So that you will find always that the principles of God's dealings with the children of Israel are precisely God's principles of dealing with every human being that is born into this world. Now I say that it is in that larger way that I am anxious to consider with it, with, consider it with you this evening. And I want to put it to you like this. It seems to me that here we are given in very brief compass a perfect picture of how God does deal with mankind. There is obviously, uh, one notices as one reads the Bible repeatedly, there is a kind of definite plan and pattern in this matter. You can't read the story of the children of Israel without seeing it quite clearly and quite plainly. I say it is there with regard to the whole of mankind. You go back right to the book of Genesis before the children of Israel had come into being and you'll find that God was really doing the same thing and in the same way. There are certain principles on which God acts and through which he seems to act. And my whole suggestion to you this evening is that he is acting still on these principles. That really is the great message of the Bible. 
The Bible is a great book which is concerned to deal with one big thing and that one big thing is this. God's dealing with mankind. That's what it really is about. There are many subdivisions and subsections but ultimately it all comes back to that. That is its specific object and purpose. It is God addressing us about himself and about us and about the relationship between us. It's about death and life and eternity. All these things come in and that is the great message I say of the book. And now I'm going to try to show you the pattern on which God acts. We'll see it all illustrated perfectly in these very children of Israel to whom Amos was writing at this particular point. Now then, let me put the plan before you. Here it is. First and foremost, God sends his word to men. That's always the beginning. We start by being confronted by the word of God. Now, the children of Israel were. You remember how God constantly addressed them. Take, for instance, the most striking example and illustration of that. When God, in his mercy, took them out of the bondage and the captivity of Egypt. He told them that he was going to take them into this promised land of Canaan. And then he began to address them through Moses. And he told them very plainly and very clearly exactly what the position was. He said, now there are two possibilities open before you. You can live a very blessed and a very happy life. You're going into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And if you only obey my laws and my commandments, if you only do what I'm telling you to do, I promise you that I will bless you. I will shower my blessings upon you. But he said, on the other hand, if you reject my word, if you break my commandments and trample upon them and turn your backs upon me and forget me, well then, said God, equally definitely I am telling you now that I will curse you. I'll not only withhold my blessings from you, I will punish you. I am announcing it, he said, at this moment. And he did it in a graphic and dramatic way by means of those two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim, you remember. Now he said, let these stand for these two things, blessing and cursing. Let them remind you, every time you think of these mountains, remember the two possibilities. God gave his word. He addressed them. And it was made perfectly plain and clear. There was no uncertainty about it whatsoever. The veriest child could see it and could understand it. That's how he began. And you remember that he continued to address them. They began to forget him and to rebel against him. God spoke to them through Moses, later through Joshua. And then when they'd been in the land for some time, he raised a mighty succession of prophets. And he sent them one after another to speak to these people. To remind them of the original statements, that's all. These prophets, you know, do nothing but that. They simply come to these people and said, Now, have you forgotten what God said at the beginning? Have you forgotten the two possibilities? Do you think that God has changed or that his word is not true? Hearken, they said. They pleaded with them. They called them to come back to it, always back to that word. Now, that is the beginning. God sends his word. 
And my dear friends, that is as true of you and of me this evening as it was of the children of Israel. Any one of us who's ever heard this word or who's ever looked at the Bible and has ever read it has come face to face with the word of God. Now here we are in this great world, in the midst of life. Oh, we are talking about our difficulties and our problems. Quite right. It's very right that we should do so. It's very right that a Christian should read the newspapers, to read the news in the newspapers. It's very right he should listen to it on the wireless and consider it. Well, and then he should go on and say, well, why is all this? What's it all about? Well, now, we're left in no difficulty about all this. We start with the word of God. Are you interested in the problem of life? Are you perplexed by the present situation? Would you like to understand it? Now, I say there's only one way. It's to come back and consider the word of God. The word of God comes to us and addresses us about these most profound things. I start by asking, well, what is man? Who am I? What am I doing here? What's everybody else doing here? That's the first question, obviously. Now, there is no real answer to that, save the answer of this word. That God has placed us here. That God has been made and created by men. And God made men for himself. We don't understand it fully, but we know that God made men for himself. It gave him joy and pleasure to do so. And he made men in his own image. And of course he again addressed men. He gave this word. It was still the same thing. It's always the same thing. There is men placed in paradise. And well, what does God say to him? Well, exactly what he said to the children of Israel later. You can stay here. You can enjoy this life of paradise. You can go on just plucking and eating the fruit. And live a life in communion with me as long as you obey my commandments. But if you don't obey my commandments, the day that you eat of that fruit, you'll be driven out of the garden. You'll be thrust out, and dying, you shall die. Perfectly plain, wasn't it? The two sides still. Well, now, that's the word that God gave to men at the very beginning. And the story of mankind is, of course, that men rejected and refused that word and chose his own way and brought calamity upon himself. Yes, but my dear friends, you and I are still in this same position. The word of God comes to us, and it's still this same old word. There it is in the Old Testament, the account of the creation, men at the beginning, the fall and all that happened to him. It's all speaking to us. It's explaining to us why we are as we are and why our world is as it is. And then you go on with the whole story of the children of Israel. It's a revelation of God and of God's ways with respect to man. The giving of the Ten Commandments and the moral law. It's God speaking, speaking about himself. He says, I am a holy God and I will not tolerate any gods beside myself. You must therefore honor me. You mustn't bow down to any graven image. You must honor my day. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. For if you do, says God, I'm going to punish you. These things I hate, and I will not tolerate them. And a nation or a people or an individual that is guilty of these things will be punished. You know, the whole of the Old Testament is just saying that. And then you come on to your New Testament, and it's still more plain and clear. 
As I say, God has now spoken in his Son. Oh, it's no longer a servant, but the Son of God himself. Not the last of the great prophets, that was John the Baptist. This is the Son of God. You see, you and I in this world tonight are confronted by this staggering and tremendous fact that God has sent his only Son into this world because the world is as it is. That's why he's come. It wasn't a kind of spectacle. God sent his Son into the world because the world was a place of misery and of sin and of degradation. Now we are confronted by this tremendous declaration, this great proclamation, this Final revelation of God. God's revealing himself in his Son and he's speaking to us. It's a word from God. What is the word? Well, it is a word that comes to us. Condemning our sin. You see, John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, didn't he? He said, now then, repent. Realize how you've gone astray and be ready for this message that's coming to you. And when the Son of God began to preach, he said exactly the same thing. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance. In other words, it starts with a condemnation of our sin, an exposure to us of where we've gone astray, and that we are as we are, and are suffering as we are suffering, because we've not kept and honored and obeyed God's word. That's what it means. But then, of course, it doesn't stop at that. Thank God it goes on. It's this gracious and glorious and loving message which tells us that though we have sinned so terribly and so grievously, that God in his love is making a way to forgive us. God taketh no delight in the death of the ungodly, and he's proved that by sending his only begotten Son into the world. Why did he send him? Well, he sent him in order that we might be delivered from our predicament, that we might be delivered from the guilt of our sins, the punishment we so richly deserve. Not only that, he sent his son to deliver us out of the tyranny and the dominion and the thraldom of sin, not merely to forgive us and to leave us where we are. No, no. Christ came and he showed in his life how a man can live in this world if he is right with God and trusts in him and is filled with his spirit. There he walks before us and speaks to us, but he comes and he offers to dwell within us by the Holy Spirit and to empower us and to enable us to follow in his own footsteps. Here, I say, is the very thing we need, pardon and forgiveness deliverance and emancipation, the way to follow him and the ultimate promise of triumph even over death and the grave and to spend our eternity in the presence of God. That's God's word to us. That's why I regard it as the greatest privilege in the world tonight to be allowed to say such things to you. This is the word of God. This is God's message to us. As he sent his word to the children of Israel, he's sending his word today. That's the meaning of Christian preaching. That's the proclamation of the Christian church. God's word, it's facing us. You see, you have the same two possibilities this evening. You can have a life of blessedness and of joy. Or you can go on with a life of misery and unhappiness. 
It's one or the other. The blessing or the cursing still remain. The only two possibilities. And God confronts us with the possibilities right at the very beginning and at the outset of our lives. Now that is what is happening here at this moment. I am simply speaking to men and women who don't quite know where they are. And I'm telling you that the two things are there before you. God speaking to you. He's telling you that the life of disobedience and sin leads to misery and trouble and a final position which is appalling. But that that need never be your lot. If you turn to him and believe his message and accept his wondrous offer in Christ and become one of his people whom he will bless and on whom he will shower his blessings. That's how it begins always, with the word of God. But alas, I've got to go on to my second point, which is this. Man persists in repeating the self-same error and folly of Adam and of the children of Israel. Man ignores the word of God. Isn't that the whole story of these people? In spite of having all this so plain before them, they turned their backs on it. They went their own ways. And God had to send his prophets to them, as I've told you, to remind them of it. They turned their backs on the word of God. They ignored the word of God. They were always doing that. Read the Old Testament and you'll find that that is the story. Now the question arises, why did they do that? Ah, but let me ask it in a modern form. Why is it that men and women are still doing it? Why is it that the whole world isn't living in conformity to the Bible tonight? Why is it that Christianity isn't controlling the life of the world? Why not? Here is the message. Here is everything we want, everything we say we desire. It's open before us. It's possible. Why, why then isn't the whole world receiving it and living it? Why not? Why didn't these people? The answers, alas, are much too plain. Let me just notice them. Here's the first. Man ignores and turns his back upon the word of God because he thinks he knows better. It's still that, you see. The devil came to Eve and said, Hath God said? Do you think that's right? He sowed the seeds of doubt. He put up other possibilities. And she said, Oh, well, this is all right. If we eat that, we shall become as gods. The devil's perfectly right. And so they listened. They thought they knew better. God had said, No. Oh, they said, I wonder whether this is right. They thought they knew better. Well, of course, it's the same sad story. Ever since the children of Israel look at these foolish, idiotic people traveling from Egypt to Canaan, they come across other nations who've got their gods and they begin to worship them. They were no gods at all. They were simply gods made by men, idols and so on, and they bowed down and worshipped them, and they went on doing it. Wherever they heard of a god, they'd run after him and turn their backs upon this god. Why, well, because they thought they knew better. Oh, I mustn't keep you. This is still the fatal fallacy. Man is convinced in his own mind that he knows how to live in this world, and he knows how to run it. Why don't people believe the Bible? Why don't they live according to the Bible? Ah, oh, they think they know better. They've got philosophy. They've got understanding. They're interested in psychology and sociology. They're experts in politics and economics. Oh, they say the Bible, that old book. Of course not, not in 1957. Man claims that he knows. He thinks he knows himself. 
He thinks he knows life. He thinks he knows how to govern himself and how to govern his world. It is because he's convinced that he really is master and captain of his fate and of his soul that he turns his back upon this blessed word. My dear friends, I'm not here to preach theoretically. Let me ask you a direct, blunt, personal question. Are you living your life according to the teaching of this book? If not, why not? And doesn't it come to that? Oh, you shall. After all, that's only an ordinary book. That's only a book like other books. And it's, a, it's the oldest, I believe, in the latest. And I'm studying and I'm reading. Isn't that? In other words, it's confidence in yourself and your own judgment, in your own reason and opinion, and in that of other men like yourself. You don't realize that this is the word of God. And you're trusting to some sort of word of men, your own or somebody else's. That's always the first reason. But it isn't the only reason. Here's a second reason, and it's a much more important one. Indeed, it's the reason that accounts for the first one. It's this. Man ignores and turns his back upon the word of God because he delights, dislikes certain things that he tells him. It's because he, he doesn't like the way of life that it indicates. Man doesn't like the word of God. He doesn't like the Ten Commandments. He wants to kill in various ways. He wants to steal. He wants to commit adultery. Why shouldn't he, says? Why shouldn't I? Should I be held down by this mid-Victorianism? Why should I be governed by an old book like that? I believe in self-expression, says the modern man, and your Bible with its vetoes and prohibitions and restraints. I don't like it. I hate it. I dislike it. So did the children of Israel. That's why they turned their back upon this word. It wasn't so much, you see, that in a kind of philosophical sense they objected to God. No, no. God had laid down rules and regulations. They were not to live as other nations because they were his people and they didn't like that. They wanted to do these other things and they didn't want to do the things that God had told them to do. And you know, it's still the same. We put up our marvelous philosophical camouflage about the word of God and we say that our difficulties are purely intellectual. They're not, you know. Our difficulties are always primarily moral. And man doesn't like the word of God because of what it tells him about himself. Because of what it prohibits, because of what it commands, because it asks him to live a holy life and to be near God and in communion with him and to forsake sin. He wants to have the things he likes in this world and the Bible says, don't, you mustn't. He says, I want them, I must, I will. There's this moral conflict. That's the second reason. But there is a third reason. And oh, how prominently this comes out always in the history of the children of Israel. Listen to this. The third reason why man turns his back upon and ignores the word of God is this. That he always has a feeling within him that when trouble really comes, he'll be able to fall back upon it. These children of Israel, you see, were ignoring the word of God. God raises prophet after prophet and they address the people. They pay no attention at all. But then a day came, a day of calamity, and they wandered from sea to sea and from north even to the east. And they ran to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. Oh. 
Read through their whole story and you'll find it's just a succession of that, a constant repetition of that. Here it is. Let me summarize it for you very briefly. Here are these children of Israel. They ignore God. They follow their own ways and their own devices. They listened to their false prophets and they thought they were having an amazingly good time and were rather sorry for the little few that still went on listening to the word of God. But alas, troubles came, difficulties arose, and they were overwhelmed in calamities. And what did they do? They turned back to God. And God was ready to receive them. He pardoned them. He forgave them. And for a while they kept straight again, but then they wandered away and back again to the old paths. And then they got into trouble and back again to God and God again heard them and answered them. And they developed this sort of mentality, you see. They said, oh, well, it'll be all right in the end. The word of God is always there when you're in a tight corner. It's all right. It'll always be there in the moment of difficulty. Now, that was the thing they kept on doing. And so, you see, God tells them on this occasion, and I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread and nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Silence at last. Not a word left to themselves. Oh, what a tragic and pathetic thing this is. I speak of it with feeling. Because like every one of you, I've done this thing myself. I think it was Mr. C.S. Lewis I read once. Who said something like this. That there are far too many people in the world who use religion as the kind of parachute they have with them in the aeroplane. It's only a parachute. They don't want to, look, to use it. They hope they never will. But if the engine suddenly cut out and the plane is falling and disaster and death are imminent, make use of the parachute. Religion as a parachute or as a life belt. Something you can fall back upon in time of need. Ah. You remember the story of the Titanic, don't you? You remember she went down on a Sunday. And you remember how the jazz band, or whatever they called it then, was playing. Though it was a Sunday and they were all having an amazingly good time. Until that awful thud took place. And they realized they'd struck an iceberg. And that the ship was beginning to sink and the band turned to what? Nearer, my God, to thee. Nearer to thee. What a fool man is. He ignores the word until he's in a tight corner. Then he thinks he can turn to it and it'll always be there and he can always use it. Nearer, my God, to thee. When your ship begins to sink, having ignored it completely while everything was going well. That's why men ignores the word of God. That's the second element. God sends his word and speaks. Secondly, men ignores it. Thirdly, God chastises. God doesn't give men up the moment he sins. Of course he doesn't. The whole story of the Bible is here to tell us that he doesn't do that. What does he do? Well, God chastises. God visits the people. 
God punishes us. He does it in various ways. The way that he adopted so frequently was the very one that, was, that is mentioned here negatively. God uh, chastises and punishes and calls us back to himself. How? Well, by sending famines. Famine of bread. Shortage of water. Now, that was the common way in those ancient times because these were mainly uh, an agricultural people. Of course, it still happens in that way, but this is a picture of God's dealings with mankind in general. God doesn't see speaking to men the moment men disobeys and wanders off. No, no. God follows us with his love. God doesn't forsake us immediately as he didn't forsake these people. He raised his prophets, sent them after them. He did things to them. What are the things he does? Well, I say it may be literally a famine. It may be literally a drought. But it isn't always that. It's sometimes things like these. Sometimes it's a trouble. Some awful trouble perhaps in your personal life or your family life. Things begin to go wrong. You see, it isn't always this. Such things are not always the chastisement of God. Don't misunderstand me. But sometimes they are. God permits these things in order to arrest us and pull us up. Or it may be an illness, a sickness. It may be a loss of money. It may be that somebody lets you down in a horrible and a drastic manner. Oh, and you were bitter at the time and you couldn't understand it. But later on you came to see that it was God dealing with you. You'd never have turned to God but for that. God does things like that. Oh, I go further. You know, I'm prepared to believe that God allows war for this reason. He allows pestilences. He allows earthquakes and all these things. They're part of his grand, great, permissive will. And I believe they're designed as punishments and as chastisements to the human race. To call them back to the word. It's all in the Bible. It isn't my theorizing. God never sends a storm without sending clouds first. God always sends his warnings before he sends doom upon the people. Isn't that the story of the flood? The people destroyed at the flood had been warned for 120 years by Noah. God warned them. Wasn't there warning before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Wasn't there centuries of warning to these children of Israel, to this northern kingdom and again to the other kingdom? Even the sun had come as a warning before they were finally smitten. God always warns before he strikes. Is this principle still true, asks someone? Well, my friend, I ask you to consider very seriously the world in which you're living at this present moment. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not suddenly becoming interested in times and seasons. I'm not trying to fix the date of the end of the world. But I am here to put certain questions to you. What is happening in the world today? Do you understand it? What's gone wrong with this century? What's the matter with it? Why the wars and the alarms and the troubles? What's the meaning of all these latest inventions and discoveries? This ability of men to get into that outer space. Has it some significance, do you think? Is it speaking to us? Is it saying something? Isn't our little world contracting? Don't we see the possibility of an end if some fool suddenly pulls the wrong trigger? 
Isn't God speaking in all this and isn't this a warning? Don't you think that God is addressing mankind? Don't you think that this is some kind of prophetic utterance? Well, I say it's a part of God's plan. It's the principle on which he's always acting. God always chastises and warns and as it were does all that even he can do before he does the last thing. And the last thing is the thing that is mentioned here particularly, which is this. That if men persist in ignoring utterly all that God does, he then pronounces and announces final punishment. Final punishment. Oh, my dear friend, it's because it's in the Bible I'm preaching it. I'd much sooner not preach it. I don't like it myself in a sense. I know it's not popular. I know I'm saying something that the modern man abominates, but that's not the question. It's here. It's here from beginning to end. Genesis to Revelation. It's my solemn duty to put it to you. What does he threaten? Well, here it is. It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day, and I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only sun, and the end thereof as a bitter day, Oh, here it is in a nutshell. What God says he's going to do is this. Here are these mad and foolish people dancing and singing, drinking and having their good time, ignoring God and laughing at his word, making fun of those who still believed it. Suddenly, God comes into it all, blots out the sun at noonday, brings darkness in the midst of life, stops the dancing and the drinking, and the jollification produces chaos and calamity on all hands. Everything they'd enjoyed and lived for is suddenly withdrawn from them. War and calamity and pestilence, confusion and trouble on all hands and on all sides. I'll send it, says God, and he did. But you know, the most terrible thing he says is this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Did you know that that is the final calamity? That is the worst thing of all. There is nothing which is conceivable which is worse than this. What is this? Well, let me put it like this to you. This is a picture of the final misery of the impenitent, the ungodly, the man who's not a Christian. I say there is nothing worse than this for this good reason. This is worse than a famine of bread and a famine of water. Why? Well, because those only affect my body. This affects my soul. A famine of bread and of water, pestilences, illnesses, diseases, earthquakes, calamities. They can kill me. Yes, but they only kill my body. And thank God as a Christian, I can say that though they do that, I'm still all right. And I'm all right throughout eternity. But this other famine is a famine that affects the soul. You know, our Lord himself put that in these words, didn't he? He said, fear not them 
that destroy the body, but, are, but after that have nothing that they can do. Fear him rather that is able, after he has destroyed the body, to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Don't be afraid of men, says our Lord. Though they invent these marvelous things and can blow you to nothing, don't be afraid of them. They can only destroy your body. Don't even be afraid of the devil and of hell. They can only do temporary things to you. The only one to fear is the God in whose hands your soul is and who determines your everlasting and eternal destiny. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That is why there is nothing so terrible, so awful, so appalling as the state of a man who's outside the word of God. Had you ever thought of it like that, I wonder? Had you ever considered, my dear friend, what it is to die without knowing the gospel? That's what he's talking about. It's a picture of a man on his deathbed. It's a picture of a man dying. It's a picture of a man dead without the word of God. What is the truth about him? This famine of hearing the word of the Lord. What's the position of such a man? Well, here it is. He is left absolutely to himself. Everything else is silenced. The sun has gone out. The earth is darkened. The feasts which he used to enjoy have ended. The supply has ceased. The money isn't there to buy them. The singing and the jollification has become lamentation. Everybody's groaning. The atomic bomb has come and we are being burned and all mankind is groaning and no one can say a word to me. All that I have lived for is suddenly gone. I'm bereft of it. It's ended in a moment. You see, we had a foretaste of it in the last war, didn't we? Blackout. Cinema shut. Theater shut. Public houses shut. Everything shut. The things we were living on stopped. What can we do? But it only lasted a few days. Here it is, lasting forever. All you've lived for, suddenly at an end. And you're left to yourself and your own devices. And you've got nothing to fall back upon. For there's nothing there to fall back upon. You are just left to yourself. To die, you know, is a tremendous thing. A man dies alone. Nobody can help him. Nobody can be with him. He's alone. He's as much alone as he was when he came into the world. He's dying alone. And nothing can help him. Boon companions, drink, entertainment, life, newspapers, books. He's too ill. He can't. He's left to himself and his own thoughts. And you know every one of us is going to be in that position. I can imagine nothing more appalling than to be left like that to myself without the word of the gospel. But such is and will be the position of any man, every man that does not believe this gospel and is not committed to it. The second thing, of course, is that there is no comfort at all. Here is a man who suddenly finds his life's philosophy smashed at his feet. All the clever things he believed have gone wrong. All he'd pinned his hopes in has turned false. His whole philosophy of life 
has been utterly ridiculed before his eyes and there he is disillusioned and he's got no alternative. He doesn't understand what's happening to him. Doesn't know why it's happened. Doesn't see why it's happened. Doesn't understand his world. His old philosophy of life has been falsified. He doesn't understand men himself, other men. He doesn't know God. He doesn't understand the universe. He is left to himself. He shut out this word, and therefore he has no explanation. And no one can help him. Because they've believed what he's believed. And have laughed at and have rejected the word of God. They're in equal misery. They're enduring the same kind of torment. And there's nothing they can say to him. He's entirely left to himself. And there is no comfort. He begins to see that he's been wrong and that he's a fool. But he knows nothing about forgiveness. And he says to himself, the man makes his own bed in this world and he has to lie in it. That's his philosophy. He says, it's no use crying over spilled milk. I've made a fool of myself. I can't go back. I've done it, and what I've done, I've done. What can I do? There is no hope of forgiveness. So he spends his life in useless remorse, kicking himself, seeing what a fool he's been. There he is, I say, left entirely to himself and has no comfort whatsoever. And he has no hope. There is nothing he can do himself to improve the position. No one else can help him to improve the position. He's got no hope at all in this world. He knows nothing about making a new start, receiving a new life and a new nature, and having a new beginning. None. He doesn't believe in that sort of thing. He's always ridiculed it. So he's left in his misery and failure without any hope at all. He may say to himself, well, I can pull myself together and try a new start. But by now he has discovered that the powers and the forces opposed to him are too great to him. He's often tried to make new starts before, but they never lasted. They always failed. He believed in the power of morality, but it's let him down. And here he is with no hope at all in the present. What of the future? What about death? What about that which happens beyond it. Well, the writer of Rahim has put it well in these words. He says, Men die in darkness at thy side without a hope to cheer the tomb. He's got no hope at all. All that he seems to know is this. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. No change, no hope. In this world or in the world to come. Outside of dogs and sorcerers and adulterers. What's that world? It's your present world. And there he is left in that forever and forever with no hope of a change or of any relief, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, says the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Outside in that, would you like to spend eternity as this world is now, but even worse, with not a hope of deliverance or any change? That is the position of men without the word of God. You face it. You consider it. 
What is there but this? There is nothing. Chaos has come again. And they all leave the world to darkness unto me. I'm left alone in my cemetery. Mourning. Cursing and kicking myself without hope. Oh, I know of nothing more terrible than a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. If you took this gospel from me, I would have all, be of all men the most desperate. And here they are, frantically seeking, rushing from north to east in all directions, wandering from sea to sea, asking, is there a hope, is there a glimmer? And there is none. For I say, if a man dies in this world without believing this gospel, he'll never have a word, he'll never have a hope at all. That is the picture of a man who, because he has rejected the word of God throughout his life, he is finally rejected of God. My dear friend, I cannot end without saying one further word to you. That is the truth. That is the message of God's book. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. But you see, the man who doesn't believe shall perish. The most glorious statement you say in the Bible, John 3.16, I agree, but it tells you that, that if you don't believe this word, you shall perish. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Oh, it's a most solemn matter. But it is the very gospel that offers us free pardon and forgiveness that tells us that the Son of God died on the cross for our sins and to receive our punishment and who will give us new life and a new hope and emancipation and deliverance and all we need and a certainty of heaven in spite of all bombs and everything else. It is the same Son of God and the same gospel that says that if a man persistently and finally and even to his deathbed rejects this word, He shall spend his eternity in that awful misery that comes to those who know a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. But I thank God it's not too late. This is the warning. It is not too late. Behold, I say with the Apostle Paul, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Thank God. I'm not Amos. I'm not sent with the word of a final calamity which is inevitable. I'm here still in the day of grace. And I say to you, if you believe this word now, 
It's all right. I want you to say this. Today, today. Thy mercy calls me to wash away my sin. However great my trespass. Whatever I may have been. However long from mercy. I may have turned away. Thy blood, O oh Christ, can cleanse me and make me white. Today, believe it, my dear friend, today, while there is yet time, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, if you will hear his voice. Oh, I plead with you, hear it. Consider that awful picture of the state of those who are left without the word and left without it to all eternity. With the dogs and the sorcerers and the adulterers and the vileness and the filthiness of it all. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. An eternity of that. Oh, I say, as you realize that that is the truth of God's proclaimed word. Turn away from it and turn back to him. For the word of grace is still here. It is still offered. It is not too late. Today, if you will hear his word, his voice, repent, believe, and you will have the experience given in the hymn that we sang before this sermon of mine about that word of God and all the endless glories that shine in it, the word that tells of pardon, of peace, of power, of reconciliation, of a joy that is never-ending, of a love which cannot cease. Hear the word. Receive it, believe it, accept it, yield to it, and he will receive you. And then take up your cross and follow him, and he will lead you all the way, whatever may happen in the world round and about you. Hear him.